what was increasingly clear that this was a would be a fun book was just like the the growing number of just like insane tales that you'd hear from from uh, former employees and whatnot about private jets and and it was just sort of like they became the the apotheosis of of like everything concerning in Silicon Valley. There's such mass mass delusion, like really sanctioned recklessness throughout. I mean. One of the one of the sad aspects of I think this story is you know not to take any credit away from Adam for the rise and for sort of running this company into the ground Adam Newman the CEO but I feel like there are few people who could have built the company that Adam Newman did and inspired all these people but he was he was a visionary you can't take that away from him he had this ability to raise money to get people to follow him. Um, he also was completely reckless. You know, it was this emperor's new clothes moment in 2019 where uh, people finally saw it for what it was and it all kind of crumbled um, in a really dramatic, uh, journalistically uh, engaging way. This wasn't just about WeWork and, and a charismatic entrepreneur, Adam Newman. This is about uh, how the, the financial system and the financial structure uh, created uh, and enabled uh this kind of like crazy thing to become the country's most valuable startup. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell, both ace business journalists who just put out this book, The Cult of We. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot and Maureen. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Uh, so first, uh, I want to get a little bit of, of the backdrop for each of you. You're both business journalists. Um, and how long have you been doing what you've been doing? How did you get into this line of work? Because I, I know there are a lot of people that uh, love business, love writing, but I know it's very, very hard to do what you do. Um, I'll start. I kind of stumbled into business journalism. I um After college, I worked at a think tank and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, then I went to J school. I always wanted to get into journalism, but not necessarily business. My only uh, class in college on business was Marxism. I was as close as I got to um, <laughs> economics ever. And the first job that kind of came available was in New York. It was covering mergers and acquisitions. And I, I admittedly went into the uh, interview not really quite knowing what a merger was. <laughs> Somehow got the job and um, really then kind of just learned on the job and started to see, I always had kind of wanted to do more politics and really started to see that business tells you about politics and the world at large in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And I became kind of hooked on business journalism from there. Wow. They, I think you dodged a bullet, Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that business journalism might uh, you know, <laughs> have an edge over uh, political journalism. Uh, Elliot, how about you? Um, not too dissimilar a story. I, I, um, I took one econ class in college that wasn't Marxism. Um, and I was really interested in real estate. And so I started writing about that when I got uh, to the, uh, New York and, in, in, you know, right after college at, at the New York Sun and then the New York Observer. Uh, it was more political in terms of what I covered. It was about sort of fights over housing and, and, and development. Uh, but then um, I went to the Wall Street Journal because I wanted a job that, you know, wasn't at the New York Observer after a while. And uh, the, the, the job there was business. And I sort of uh, learned what, what loans were and debt was. And uh, I, I guess I always knew how to use an Excel sheet better than sort of the average political reporter. So um, it, 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 I, I enjoy it. Uh, like, it, it's kind of fun. It doesn't take um, it, there's a, a lot of differences with politic, political journalism. Look at this. Elliot just managed to throw his former employer and the numeracy of other reporters under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the observer, but yes, I didn't even get into the owner at the time, which was. Yeah. They didn't deserve you, Elliot. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, so you both wrote this incredible book, The Cult of We, about WeWork, about uh, Adam Neumann, uh, about this uh, incredible 21st century uh, emblem of entrepreneurship. Um, so uh, how did this book 
germinate and come about? And how the heck did you all decide to team up on it? Like, were you both reporting on WeWork and then you looked across the desk at each other and were like, hey, we're going to write a book together. Like, you know, <laughs> like, how does this happen? Um, yeah, so that, that, that's that's essentially the short version. Um, I, I was writing on WeWork as a real estate reporter for years, uh, starting in, I first met Adam Newman in, in 2013, uh, back when they were this little tiny uh, company in lower Manhattan with a few leases. Um, and uh, then, you know, kind of just followed them. It was essentially the same story the whole way through for a while, which was, why is this real estate company valued so high? Uh, like at, you know, why 20 indeed, to 40. <laughs> <laughs> when, 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 when did you start asking that question? Um, so pretty soon. So at first it was like, wow, why this guy's really interesting and, and kind of bouncing off the walls with energy and co-working is a fast growing trend. That's sort of interesting. But then I learned their valuation and it was one and a half billion dollars. Uh, and so that was 2014 that I learned that, I guess. And that that from there through 2019 was sort of the obsession, um, might say unhealthy obsession on my end. Um, and yeah, that then, you know, as things got crazier, then um, the, the Maureen can sort of f fill in, but, but she, she came along too. I think in 2019, uh, no, 2018 at some point, maybe even 2017, I covered IPOs for the journal. So it was always on in the small cohort of companies, Airbnb, Uber, that were the most interesting companies to cover that were eventually going to go public. Um, so I would look at it from that vantage point and... Yeah, in 2018, I also wound up covering SoftBank a lot, the Japanese conglomerate that was just becoming a bigger and bigger investor in startups. Um, so Elliot and I teamed up a little bit on stories about both of them in 2018, and then much more as 2019. And then by the time uh, the IPO was falling apart, I mean, we were working on stories like round the clock and, you know, talking like a dozen times a day about like what was going to happen and you know, by the, around the time when Elliot had been, I think, thinking about this for a while, but over the last week or so before Adam Newman resigned, we were, we were like, this could be a really interesting book. And it, it came together very quickly after that. So you came into the story because uh, everyone thought that they were going to IPO. And then you were like, OK, you know, unicorn IPOing, that's cool. <laughs> and then it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> they started talking to Elliot. <laughs> Elliot's like, hey, I think there's some problems over there. We work. Uh, now, I can tell you all about, I, like most other people, I heard about WeWork during the unicorn days, and I also had a chin-scratching moment being like, how are they worth billions and billions of dollars? And uh, my, here was my experience with Elliot, which will entertain the heck of, out of you, is that uh, I was actually operating out of a Regis office space in the <laughs> mid-2000s. So for those of you listening to this who don't know uh, what, what that is, uh, Regis is... Uh, co-working space for small businesses <laughs> that, that, that you know if you don't want to have a long-term lease you could sign up for their office space they have like supplies they they charge you for phone lines uh, you have a fancy mailing address um, so I was part of a small software company that operated out of a Regis uh, for several years from 2002 to 2005 um, and so then when you see we work with this crazy valuation, you're, I was like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> like, like that, that, that business existed. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it not only did it exist, but it had almost the exact same story happen to it, because in 1999, it told the world in 2000 that it was part of the dot com boom because they had broadband that went there and something else about the future of office space. And they tried to get a valuation like a tech company and then it all imploded. Uh, so um, it was a very similar story. I'll tell you another data point I had that I was like, okay, that company's uh, um, going to, to be like a house of cards that falls apart. Um, was a friend of mine said to me that he uh, was recruited to work in a WeWork Detroit. Um, and he said that WeWork Detroit had opened up and no one wanted to pay the rates uh, that they were charging. And if you've been to Detroit, you know that the, the main thing that Detroit has right now is millions of empty offices, <laughs> shall we say. Like millions of, not millions is an exaggeration, thousands of really, really inexpensive, accessible office spaces. Uh, in the city of Detroit. Um, so when I heard that, I was like, why on earth would WeWork expand to Detroit? <laughs> 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 and, 
And then the fact that they were having a lot of trouble filling that space, I was like, oh man, like there's something really, really, uh, really uh, over aggressive going on out of that company. Uh, and I might have heard this story around 2018 or so. Yeah, I think that that was, you know, like as someone watching the rise, I was constantly wondering at like these new markets. It's like because, you know, they, they, their goal was to keep doubling revenue every year. And there's only so many people that want to we work in New York. Uh, and so they would have to yeah keep expanding to these random markets that I think when everything fell apart, they looked at and they're like, why are we in Kansas City? Um, and. Uh, but then sort of the other thing, I guess, to mention about what what was increasingly clear that this was a would be a fun book was just like the the growing number of just like insane tales that you'd hear from from uh, former employees and whatnot about private jets. And, and it was just sort of like they became the, the apotheosis of, of like everything concerning in Silicon Valley. And you'd always hear about I was covering startups at the time and by 2018 and 19 and the, the concerning trends were like founders taking out of money uh, and like companies spending way you know more than they have and like I don't know founder control uh, w where the founder just has uh, y you know no restraint and, and does things that don't support the business and pays for their hobbies and like Adam was doing all of these things uh, and you know with a lot of tequila and, and, and pot smoke t to boot. I, I think that was one of the most striking aspects of this story, and uh, they, they should make a movie out of this or a documentary. Um, have, has anyone optioned this thing? They did. Um, they're actually making one right now. They optioned our book, but they're making, uh, they've moved forward with a different one that Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway are playing Adam and Rebecca Newman. No. Yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we briefly had um, it, 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 uh, Nicholas Braun, so cousin Greg from Succession was sort of tagged to, uh, to play Adam, and, but uh, it didn't work out in the end. And we thought no. he was awesome. No. <laughs> well, he has the height because, uh, you know, Adam's yep. really tall. Uh, the, the Nicholas Braun's really tall. Um, Jared Leto, less tall. Though <laughs> no, 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 no. um, no, I'm into it. So what you're saying is that there's a there there's like a competing documentary. Um, uh, it, it, what this reminds me of is like Firefest. Where there yes. were like two oh, yeah. Firefest documentaries, is that what's happening? Completely. That's what happened. So yeah, it was um, uh, Apple TV is is filming literally right now, uh, and the the Daily Mail and they they optioned a uh, a podcast uh, by Wondery, um, and then yeah, we briefly sort of had a dalliance with Amazon, but uh, it didn't um, have uh, you know they, they aren't filming now, so. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So fun. <laughs> so so uh, as journalists, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm just curious. Um, so when you two are co-reporting feverishly uh, during the run-up to the IPO in 2019, and just like tales of... Uh, excess and um, you know lunacy are, are coming out <laughs> that you're looking at each other being like talking you're talking to dozens of people um, so when did you decide to come together on the book it was in the days uh, right around when he was about to leave he was getting pushed out I mean we had, the IPO had fallen apart and um, 
it was just the story just got crazier and crazier. But essentially, when we started hearing uh, and Elliot, Elliot wrote this really groundbreaking story. This this was from his years of reporting about um, him boarding a, about all his excesses, about like boarding a plane to Israel and leaving a marijuana box um, on the plane. And the pilot was taken in by the police shortly after that for many reasons. But very much part, Elliot's story was part of it. Adam Newman was pushed out and it just it was unfathomable. Um, and Elliot could speak more to that, but I mean, we just couldn't, it happened so quickly. It was so crazy. And we were, you know, it just felt like you were in the middle of like a movie kind of out as, and we heard one funny thing was like, we heard there was this coup coming to get Adam out. So we were trying to report the coup and figure it out. And Mike Isaac um, at the New York Times had just written a book on Uber called Super Pump. Did it come out a while ago? But I was partway through it. And Elliot kept on saying, just get to the coup part. <laughs> like, this is what's happening this weekend. You got to read the coup chapter. <laughs> it's a little different, but it, so it felt like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then at that point, you said, we should totally write a book about this. And, and one of my questions really is, uh, it seemed like you guys had hundreds and hundreds of interviews, probably hundreds of pages of notes. Uh, like, what's the process between when you say, hey, we should write a book. And then uh, Elliot's like, oh, good, because I've been doing research on these guys <laughs> for, 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 for five, five or six years. Uh, you know, like what, what happens next? How did you divide the labor? Uh, because I've, I've now written a few books myself and like, I don't know how the co-authorship process even works. Yeah, it was it was uh, super collaborative. So, um, you know, without boring people too much, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, for the first few months after uh, we, we agreed to do it, um, we were still, uh, hadn't taken leave yet at the journal and we're working on a big year end piece that would like clearly dovetail well with the book where we were just, Getting talking to tons of people about the aftermath, and and sort of um, you know doing learning more to dig into the company. Um, so that was sort of chunk one, and then chunk two was taking leave, and then like laying out the arc of the book and and figuring out uh, who we needed to talk to. And so we would just divide up who to talk to, and then we would just constantly talk with each other about. Who should we, what are we going to ask this person? What are we going to say? So, um, yeah. And then, then, you know, we eventually started writing and that was, uh, we, we kind of traded off chapters, but would talk about the structure of a chapter before we'd each do it. And then we'd kind of trade and then both, you know, go through with the others writing. Wow. You guys really must get along famously. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of incredible. Yeah. That we, that, like we, we fight over shared documents and, and a few too many of those, but uh, the, yeah, there, there's, there's not that much tension, which is kind of a, a, a new world record for me. That, that is remarkable, particularly given how, uh, how petty uh, I get over my own prose. <laughs> like I remember something and then someone changes a word I'd be like why did you change that word <laughs> I heard a lot of people I don't know sorry I don't know if you think this Andrew but um a number of our colleagues and other friends who'd written books were like it gets really lonely you're like in this whole world and you're kind of alone in it so I thought I mean it was just really fun like every day we were finding out new things and um you know as much as my husband cared about the book which he did like he might not want to talk about it like uh, all day long so it was like just so much fun to talk about it it was also good to have the motivation of, you know, if it were just me, I could be like, uh, well, I don't need to do this now. You know, I'd rather sit around and hit refresh on Twitter. Uh, and But it's like, we, we, no, <laughs> but that, that's sort of the, the, the general, you know, status quo. And, and but like having Maureen there, it's like, ah, I'd be letting down her whole family if I, I procrastinated. <laughs> so. <laughs> My children would actually call Elliot, which is another story. But my younger daughter would be like, I want to talk to Elliot on FaceTime. <laughs> she was kind of obsessed with him. <laughs> so the book is endlessly entertaining. It's very hard to put down. Uh, you know, you want to see what happens next. One of the things I was trying to figure out is like, what do you think like the big themes or lessons or takeaways from the book are? I got, you know, I had my own. Um, and for, for those of you listening to this or, or someone listening to this who aren't as familiar with the WeWork story, like go ahead and someone give like a, uh, you know, like the 60 second version. It's like, you know, the, it's like the rise and fall of an entrepreneur. It's like excesses of a particular era. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's a business parable. Uh, it, it's it's the power of, um, uh, of people to 
kind of deny certain realities in the face of a particular type of culture. Um, but uh, yeah, how would you actually uh, describe the the story that you spent now at this point years <laughs> painstakingly documenting? Um, you, 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 you took away all of the main takeaways. That, that was very good. It was like, uh, wow, um, you know, we, we hope people would take away a lot of those lessons. So, um, yeah, I, like, I mean, the short version is, is a, you know, baby clothes entrepreneur, uh, changed jobs to found a, a, a real estate company, convinced the whole investment world that it was a disruptive tech startup raised $10 billion. And uh, then, you know, it was this emperor's new clothes moment in 2019, where uh, people finally saw it for what it was, and it all kind of crumbled um, in a really dramatic, uh, journalistically uh, engaging way. Um, so, uh, you know, but yeah, like, I think we, we both thought one of the most important tales to tell here was that the financial it, this wasn't just about we work and and a charismatic entrepreneur adam newman this is about uh how the the financial system and the financial structure uh created uh and enabled uh this kind of like crazy thing to become the country's most valuable startup and uh, but it was just a real mirage um and so we wanted to tell that tale yeah, it was, I mean, it was, there's such mass, mass delusion, like really sanctioned recklessness throughout. I mean, one of the, one of the sad aspects of, I think, this story is, you know, not to take any credit away from Adam for the rise and for sort of running this company into the ground, Adam Newman, the CEO, but I mean, he, yeah, it was this, he was very much enabled. I feel like there are a few people who could have built the company that Adam Newman did inspired all these people I and mean, he was he was a visionary you can't take that away from him he had this ability to raise money to get people to follow him um he also was completely reckless but there was like there were there should have been checks and balances on his recklessness and it's sort of sad that the system didn't work in that way like could he have built this to great heights and if people were willing to stand up to him could we have this company now like could people, I mean, he made all these young people sort of believe in the power of building this company. I think there's something, there was something inspiring and there's such delusion, disillusionment with so many of the people who work there. You know, it's one reason I really liked the book uh, is that I think you, you were balanced in this way. Like, you know, that like what you just said, Maureen, about the fact that, look, this is a genuine visionary, uh, genuinely talented entrepreneur, and certainly an, an incredible uh, salesperson, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's some like real, there's some yeah. <laughs> real talented skills in here. Um, uh, and in, in different circumstances with different people and different teams uh, around him and some of the institutional checks that you would expect to be there, uh, then WeWork could be an extraordinarily positive, impactful company uh, right now, you know, like that, that, that had some of its excess is moderated. I think at least one of the investors was like, well, after it becomes public, someone's going to rein this guy in. (laughs) 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 Which is kind of a funny sentiment. But, you know, I I think that uh, you were, as far as I could tell, like quite balanced um, and appropriate. I thought it was an extraordinarily important detail that Adam was dyslexic um, because there are so many world-class entrepreneurs that are dyslexic. I don't know if you, you, you both know this, um, but I think like half of Shark Tank is dyslexic. Uh, That's interesting. Uh, Damon John, Barbara Corcoran, uh, both dyslexic. Uh, like like there, there are so many hyper-talented entrepreneurs who struggled in school and developed these other capacities that enabled them to do things uh, in, in startups and, and the business world. That's fascinating. So I, I only had one other data point that I guess I probably shouldn't name because I never confirmed it. But but yeah, it was another large unicorn CEO um, that that was, and I, someone else was like, "You should look into if this is a real thing." And, and uh, it's a thing. Uh, you all should know. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so but the, I mean, uh, you know, certainly entrepreneurs uh, um, having a higher preponderance of dyslexia than than uh, the general population. Um, is is very much uh, a reality uh and one of the things that i struggled with too reading this and th- this is going to be me confiding in you both a little bit um because this is not something that most people would experience <laughs> reading this book 
Um, but I ran for president. <laughs> <laughs> the first interview where uh, this has come up. <laughs> uh, and and there were there were so many elements of uh, just needing to really believe in a way that uh, draws other people in uh, and drives an organization forward. Uh, and I've uh, seen that in the business and entrepreneurship space. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen that in the political space. I've lived a version of that in the political space. Uh, and uh, like one of the things I was trying to figure out reading this book was, uh, was how I felt about uh, Adam. Um, certainly you can say that there are a lot of people around him where you're like, they, they just didn't do their jobs. <laughs> you know, like someone, someone needed to do a better job, uh, especially people that were um, financing the company uh, or people on the board. I mean, like the, the folks who were around him. And, and this, is, this is one of the reasons why I struggled with this, is check this out. Um, so there, there is, and this is one of the things that you uh, question in the book, really. Uh, which is this deference to the founder um, where a practice has changed in startups where it used to be that if I started a company then I had certain abilities but I probably wouldn't be an effective CEO of a very large organization uh, because there's a lot of process there a lot of regulation there and so investors would bring in a professional CEO essentially it's like adult supervision or like adult replacement and then the visionary builder would then step aside and let the CEO take uh, his or her company, generally a him in these contexts, unfortunately, <laughs> like, like to maturation. And then there's been this new set of thinking that, uh, that a founder can like, go from A to Z, where uh, Mark Zuckerberg very famously turned down you know, billion dollar acquisition offers for Facebook and people thought he was crazy and then now that company is worth almost a trillion dollars or a trillion dollars. Uh, and, and so there's thinking now that like, well, well there's actually something special to the founder and the vision. Um, and if you had a professional manager in there, they would screw it up. Um, and, and so Adam Newman benefited from that founder deference. Uh, and, uh, and it seems like the school of thought has kind of gone back and forth a little bit. Um, uh, and so I was struggling to, to think about which one I felt more strongly about. It's like, does the person that originated the company and has a vision, like sometimes they're the person that can lead the thing for decades uh, to greater heights. And then in other cases, uh, you know, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> and there probably isn't a rule there. There's, it's probably that, you know, it depends upon the individual. Yeah, no, uh, that, that, that hits on, um, that's really fascinating. So thanks for, I was going to ask you about uh, sort of how you felt about this founder control, um, because uh, it is this, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty undeniable that the, I mean, you just go down the list of, of the, the most valuable companies and they all um, like had or have a founder that, that did a huge amount of the lifting um, to get to these, you know, trillion dollar market caps. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, a lot of this is born out of the, the mythology of Steve Jobs and, and Jeff Bezos being these omnipotent beings and, or, you know, above mortal, um, immortal. Um, but one thing I like to point out is neither of those two people had founder control. Uh, so they just, I mean, Steve Jobs was kicked out of his company and came back and, and it all worked out in the end. Um, and then uh, Jeff Bezos uh, just owns 40% of the stock or owned 40% of the stock um, and, you know, was doing a job that the board liked. So I guess, you know, one thing I wonder is there's the mythology of the founder and, and, and love of the concept of the, the visionary founder. And clearly, you know, there's something, something to that. Uh, but then why do you need to give them 100% of control? Like, I think that is just a product of the market. And that's like how the venture capital market has, you know, decided to conduct itself. Uh, because investors want to get in a deal. And, and so they'll be like, okay, I'll give you the keys to the car. Um, and like, to me, it's like, this is the obvious manifestation. We work is like the obvious result of some of that. Like how you're going to give people billions of dollars and full control. And like, you don't expect this to happen at some point. Yeah, there's no um, checks put on. And it's like, I mean, Adam, it was to the extreme, but within so many of these companies now, it's like take it or leave it. And the venture capitalists don't want to be seen as founder. They want to be founder friendly, that to get into every deal that they want. It's like, yeah, the, how the 
the pe- like the pendulum has swung. Even if you believe that fa- there are founders who so it's a bargaining a power job. thing. It's, a, bar- it's yes. a bargaining power thing. Completely. So I, I'm I'm going to to again. You have my personal experience uh, in this, where um, our system right now uh, like trains a lot of people um, to to be uh, bankers, consultants, lawyers. I was a corporate lawyer myself briefly. Um, and I certainly law is probably the most negative version <laughs> because it's literally it's like what are the rules comply comply uh, you know um, and, and there, there's like a culture of propriety around this stuff um, and, and then there's like the entrepreneur who often does have like and, and you can frame it as vision vision I think is a very positive connotation um, and, and then you can frame it as like a little bit of crazy which has a negative connotation <laughs> say like no one likes crazy um, but like the, I'd say most of the talented entrepreneurs that I know, and I know dozens of entrepreneurs, include like hundreds of successful entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and like, there is a sort of set of traits that they have, um, that, that management consultant, uh, does not have, or that the corporate lawyer that I used to be does not have. It's one reason why I left the law so quickly is that I actually saw myself getting rewired and retrained in ways that I did not think were good for my happiness as a human being for one but but also like you know <laughs> like, uh, and, and so one of what like you know so the easy answer is to say well there's a balance like you know you want to have a founder and then you want some people around them to be uh you know like hey you know like you might want to um like uh, ease up or uh show some restraint i think in, in the case of we work two things stood out to me um one is that i i was shocked because i did not know this i was shocked at how much uh, money um, Adam and, uh, was able to both enjoy personally um, and retain afterwards because most of like the colossal uh, implosions that I'm familiar with left the founder in much uh, you know less wealth. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's sub billionaire. Like, yeah, yeah, sub billionaire. It's like ordinarily if it implodes, like you know, you're not um, you know on top of the world. I was like, wow, like it's incredible. Like like the the level of uh, wealth that that Adam and his family um, uh, got out of a company that um, you know most people now now see as um, uh, as something of a mirage uh, to to what you'd said before, Elliot. So that was one thing was like how, like I hadn't seen that before. Um, but, <laughs> um, but but the the other thought was um, that when he raised all this money and they were looking at doing some things like just like buying properties. Um, uh, or, or things that would have stood up, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, and I guess they were trying to grow the revenue, but I thought to myself, wow, they just like, or I think there was a period when they were like looking at buying Regis or HQ or one of those. <laughs> yeah, you know? I was like, wow, if they'd done that, that would have been great. You know? <laughs> like they're... And at, it, this is financially wonky, but at that point, they were actually the same size as Regis, but worth 10 times as much. Uh, so, or, you know, maybe it was five times, but so they thought like, well, why don't we just buy this company that has just as much or even more revenue than us? And we can just pay a small percentage of our company to do it because the, the market is so crazy. And they totally should have done that. (laughs) 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 So, so that, that was one thing that stood out to me. I was like, if you'd, cause it reminds me, and and this is one of the things that I, I, I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about on several levels. So I'm, I'm 46 years old. Um, and the first time I started a dot com was 2000. It was like the first bubble 21 years ago. Now, most people who are uh, out there in the world uh, don't remember the first dot com bubble at, at, at on like a professional level. Uh, you know, like like I, I went to the launch parties of all these companies and then crashed and burned like X, um, you know, weeks later in, in, in many cases. Um, uh, and, and so... Uh, so remembering that rise and fall, that like really just like imprinted on my brain where I was like, uh, okay, you know, these things can just like, you know, go up and down. Um, and we've had some uh, of that over this past period, but like not to that extent. Like it, it seems like even when there's been this re- retrenchment, um, it, it's kind of reinflated uh, a, a little bit later. And your book starts out with a John Kenneth Galbraith quote about like financial euphoria and manias. <laughs> and, and so there, there was part of me that's like, like I almost tweeted the, the Galbraith quote, but then I, I thought it's like, yeah, it's going to seem negative uh, because, you know, like you, you 
Like, do I think... So I'm going to ask you two. Like, WeWork, generally speaking, would be an emblem of systemic excesses that would be borne out in other companies. Like, it's almost never the case that there'd be, like, one company that implodes to the tune of tens of billions, and it would be alone. <laughs> you know, like, like that's, that's not a thing. You know, like, you'd have to look around and be like, okay, there, there are these other companies. So, uh, so do you think that... Um, that people learned from WeWork and a couple of the other major companies? Uh, or do you think that uh, we're still kind of going to be experiencing um, speculative excesses in other areas? I mean, they learned for like uh, five minutes, it seemed like. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in the fall of 2019, after the fall, after WeWork's IPO got called off, I mean, there was this like quick wake up call. I mean, Masa, Masayoshi Son, the CEO of SoftBank, was going to raise another $100 billion fund. He was one of the big biggest backers of WeWork. That fell apart. Maybe fell the apart. single biggest enabler. Like, if not for him, yes. like, the, the story might be different. Yeah the, the, yeah, the rise and fall would have been much less dramatic. Um, and so that was called off. Some other IPOs were called off. Masa, who had been telling entrepreneurs to be crazier, not just Adam Newman. He yes, started, be he crazier. <laughs> that is the kind of mantra. And, 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 and this genuinely is something that, um, you know, like, again, I struggled with it with reading your book. Um, was like, I, I'm like a very, very, uh, you know, like, uh, I think like a numbers driven realistic guy. Um, but but there is, there there's something to craziness in this space. <laughs> like the craziness works sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, the wake up call. Masa was starting to tell people to become profitable, like not to spend as much money. And then suddenly, 2020, you know, after the pandemic, the Fed was sort of flooding the market with money and sort of swung swung back the other direction. And it's the only difference probably now is that a lot of uh, there's still a lot of capital in the private markets, but a lot of the insanity we're seeing in the public markets right now, companies going public with no revenue, with huge valuations, like this speculative frenzy definitely is still, the mania feels like it's still, we're in it right now. Yeah, like I think there are, you know, at first there was a broad lesson, um, as Maureen was saying, that disappeared. But, you know, then there's a couple lingering lessons. Like I don't think if you're, you're if you have a co-working company these days, you can really convince anyone that it's a tech company worth 47 billion. Like I, I, I think it'll that'll take a while to happen again. Um, but but yeah, like the general uh, lessons, uh, I think, are, are were not long lasting at all. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So we're still in a mania, according to it sounds like both of you. Um, like th there, there's, uh, there's cl clearly to me, um, still a ton of excess um, in the market 
in various ways. And, and that was one of the, the, the jarring things reading your book was ordinarily a book like this comes at like the end of a bubble and then like things are, you know, are kind of like heading in the other direction. And I looked up and I was like, wait a minute, I think we're still in the <laughs> same, well, same bubble. <laughs> we had to rewrite the, the ending because that, that was the, the arc. It was like this was this was the punctuation on the era. Um, and uh, because that's really what it looked like it was going to happen. Um, and if you like all the big unicorns at the time had, had been deflated, like Uber or Lyft, um, but, uh, then, and you know, the, the, to Maureen's point, like the, the, the market changed. So it was sort of a, a bit of a, you know, it, candidly, like it was a little shoe horning at the end. It's sort of like people learned a lesson and then they didn't. So nothing matters. Nothing matters. <laughs> <laughs> that was the vibe. I was like, yeah. we wrote it, we wrote it like four times too. It was like, okay, maybe they learned their lesson. Not totally. Then we're like, no, it's crazy. Like it had to keep on getting yeah, more extreme. <laughs> Brian Chesky from Airbnb goes on TV and is like literally speechless when he's told that how, what their opening share price is. And he's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think that was actually one of the, the major signs that we work. I was like, oh no. Like when they started talking about like community adjusted EBITDA, like return on community, I was like, oh. <laughs> like, look away, look away. <laughs> like, like, so that, that, that should be one lesson, and this is a lesson from like the first bubble. As soon as you start making up new categories of numbers, <laughs> everyone should just like start running the other direction. <laughs> uh, yeah, th there were a lot of, I mean, just sort of watching uh, WeWork rise and then like sort of m educating myself more about the dot-com era, it, it was like weird seeing all of these parallels where... Um, like I was talking about Regis earlier, where this other office-based company in 2000 was telling everyone it was the future of the office and, and a dot-com company because it had dot-com companies as users. And, uh, you, you know, then suddenly in the WeWork era, people are adding uh, blockchain to the end of their, their name, uh, just like companies would add dot-com. And it was just sort of this very, like, hype and speculative thing happening in the market and sort of uh, across a couple different categories. Uh, it's something I struggle with sometimes. I mean, I, I haven't um, been paying attention to the market uh, that much over this last several years because I, I, when I was running for president, I was like, I'm going to have like zero bandwidth for anything else. And so I just like, <laughs> like, like ignored uh, everything for a while. But like you look up and there are some experienced investors who are now saying like, hey, this is a bubble. Hey, this is going to be market correction. Hey, it's like I, I feel like we're in like the middle of like the never ending bubble. <laughs> I, I don't know, like, like, and I have no idea how this story ends. No, like, you know, it's like, like and it's like the laws of gravity have stopped applying. It's amazing because even like in the book, I, I forget if we put this, but um, one of the big investors, Benchmark, one of the big VC investors, Bill Gurley there, like he had this whole long treatise on the private market bubble. It's getting so dangerous like three or four years ago. It's like there have been years of like, this is a bubble. This is scary. And then it just keeps on like getting higher with little blips, but not really. It's still going up in a pretty extreme way. It, it, his uh, the, then the second thing that happened with him, which I think is pretty representative, is uh, you know so I think he said that something in like 2016, and then by 2018 or so, his line was he was asked like, well, you used to be saying we were in a huge bubble and valuations have gone up. Where do we stand now? He's like, you got to just play the game on the field. Everything's crazy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, and you know that statement reminds me of what like the banker said uh, around the financial crisis where it's like, well, as long as the music's playing, you got to keep dancing. Yes, totally. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like to, to the credit of bubbles, real things get created that wouldn't have gotten created. You know, companies that um, are doing sort of like really crazy bets will, will start because there's so much money out there and then they actually do figure something out that's really disruptive. Uh, so like there are some good effects to it too. But um, and then obviously the other thing that happens is companies like, figure things out. I mean, you could easily have, have said, uh, as most people did for years, that Amazon was absurdly overvalued. And then they like really do kind of build a business. And then they also just kind of stumble into cloud computing that just spits out profit at them. Um, so I mean, th these these things do become real, maybe for other reasons sometimes. So let's have a fun thought exercise. Um, how well do you think that you know Adam Newman after cataloging like the last number of years of his life? Um, and what do you think is next for him? Um, I feel like I I got to, felt like I started to know him very well. I mean, we just 
you meet people from so many we talked to so many people from so many different areas of his life I'll say you feel like you just got in his head to a certain we tried to um I'll just say on his next act I've heard this from multiple people that there will be a huge next act and it will be crazier than the first (laughs) um so I don't know Shark Tank is he gonna try to be Prime Minister of Israel we hear that as like a real um thing that he talks about I don't know another huge business it will be something gigantic grandiose there was another joke in the book that um, entertained me. Um, so when I was running for president, uh, we ran ads in Iowa, um, and I joked with my wife Evelyn like the the ads had like images of the planet and the tides, and so I was joking uh, that it looked like it was like Andrew Yang, Earth President, twenty forty. <laughs> like it was like came from like a planet far away. Like that that was really the vibe of the ad, uh, um, and like I, I was laughing when. Uh, Adam talked about running for what was it Earth President President of the World <laughs> President of the World that was it and I was like look you know you can just take my ad <laughs> um, so so uh, so second act for Adam and you have to say objectively he's like a very successful entrepreneur in the sense that he uh, founded a very significant company uh, you know like it now has like I guess hundreds of millions of dollars personally like you you read it and you're just like like I, you know, I don't know whether to. I mean, you you have to say like, by any normal circumstance, he was very successful, in the sense that most any of us would have, like you know, would love to have a, a billion dollars, <laughs> like or, or whatever he personally has. Um, though obviously there's a significant black mark, uh, you know, like uh, about some of, um, like the um, excesses. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think that. Um, it, you know, I guess the, the uh, asterisk there is, is uh, you know, WeWork was not a successful investment, right? I mean, it was for like a couple early investors, but but in, in broad strokes, they took $11 billion or so and in investment and made an $8 billion company out of it uh, which over 10 years, which is not a, a great return on, on investment. Um, and yeah, you know, some of that went to Adam, right? Like, so he, he did, if the game is, is become really, really rich, he did an absolutely masterful job, uh, cause you know, he essentially took investors money and, and enriched himself, uh, in the end as, as that was the result. But, um, if, you know, I, I guess this wasn't your argument, but, uh, there is a thought where people are like, well, WeWork's giant now. It's a great, you know, it's a real business, which it is true that it's a real business, but the reason it's giant is because it was subsidized by all this money that, that thought it was a software company. Yeah, and, and the people I felt for were all the people who joined WeWork, believed in it, worked hard, thought that they were going to make a certain amount of money based upon um, their, their stock holdings and then did not. I mean, I, I've led organizations. Uh, so when, when I ran a private company and we were acquired, uh, like I uh, gave people bonuses uh, based upon the acquisition that actually they didn't have contracts for, but it was just like, I just would have felt like a grade A asshole if people that I've been working with for years did not get anything, you know, like uh, based on the success of the company. I just thought that, uh, that you know, that just would not have been a cool uh, thing to do to people. Um, so, so, those are the, so those are the people I felt, feel for very deeply. Um, you know, like you, you spend years of your life, in some cases work like extraordinarily hard and, and get nothing uh, or, you know, or certainly like much less than you uh, were promised or thought or, or whatnot. Um, uh, the the interesting thing is like if you end up what you just said Elliot like you spend eleven billion to get eight billion, um, like that that objectively seems like a pretty bad investment, uh, especially if it takes ten years because you know you could have done something else with the eleven billion and it would have wound up with uh, you know <laughs> but, like something else. But then part of it is like well who's like the victim there? It's like the the bonehead investor who gave you like the, the, the like a lot of the eleven billion. And then it's like should I care? Uh, about that person's uh you know money it's like you know i mean and i like yes in the sense that that money could have done something else pretty much anything else and it would have been superior like you know and, and in my universe it's like you're just gonna give it to random people <laughs> like, yeah. like that would have been superior uh, <laughs> so, so so there's that like the opportunity cost um but but then there, there's part of me that's like well if i convince you to give me that much money and then i do something dumb with it <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, that's on them. I mean, yeah, I, I guess the, the, the only thing I would add is, is one of the victims that I try to, to fight for is reality. Uh, and um, if, Oh, if, interesting. If, <laughs> a champion of reality, eh, Elliot? Um, and I just think it's kind of dangerous for the system if you get this whole world of, of where the laws of gravity don't apply. So like, what if, what if the top five stocks in the stock market were all meme stocks, uh, right? Uh, like, what you know, is that where we, all we want our retirement? I mean, in the case of WeWork and, you know, Uber, when it was at its real height uh, in terms of just, you know, frothy valuation, they were essentially creating all of these offspring um, of people mimicking them under the sort of illusion that, that that they were those companies were worth much more than than they sort of really were at the end of the day and so that's why you had a million the uber for cookies and 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 the uber for pizza uh, and uber for valet parking um that were all just like horrible businesses uh and that's why you know you had this whole business of of apartment rentals doing similar things like we work and uh, you know, uh, Notel is a competitor co-working space that went bankrupt. Uh, so like it, you know, that, that hurts more people too than just like the, the employees that we work who, who didn't get stock options. Being a champion for reality that I think that that, that is like a pretty compelling case. Um, I too approve of reality and, and, but, but I, I think that, that this is really like the summary of why I felt this tension reading the book is that I'm, I'm an entrepreneur who has fought for different things at uh, different times. Like a, and, and sometimes you're arguing for like a different version of reality or a better version. Like, you know, like I said, look, we should start giving everyone a thousand bucks a month. And on the face of it, people are like, oh, like, you know, that's impossible or that's ridiculous. And then people are like, wait a minute, like, why could we not do that? <laughs> do that? And it's, 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 you know, and it's reality uh, bending for a lot of people or it was, uh, and and so pushing the boundaries of what reality is, particularly when it comes to uh, capital flows, is something that you know, like I'm obviously into, like I'm a champion of. Um, but I, I also agree with you that, you know, like I, I'm not for uh, uh, pulling the wool over, you know, like mass delusions. I'm not for mass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, it, so that, that was one of my struggles, really, uh, you know, mm-hmm. reading this book and, and my feelings about Adam, who I don't know personally, but I know a lot of people who are in the same orbit. Um, uh, and so that there was part of me that's like hero, like, you know, to be over simplistic, I don't think it's, you know, villain, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, and then there's like the system. And then you're like, well, you could definitely characterize the system as failing in various ways. Um, uh, and so this was just a personal struggle I had, um, like uh, reading the book as someone who's um, like built things that people felt were very, very unlikely before the fact, like that there's like a real and, and I'm very proud of the things I built. Like, I think that they've been good and positive. Like, I, I certainly, you know, like think that um, if, if I'd been in that set of circumstances, I would have made very, very different decisions um, and, and tried harder to take care of various people. Um, but that, that was one of the things I'm just sharing with you in like an entrepreneur's perspective, uh, re- reading the book. And I, I, don't, I don't know if, if that like uh, sparks anything in terms of your, your experience writing it. Well, I mean, one of the things, I mean, it brings up something that um, I think we've talked about a lot. And just in terms of the takeaway, it's like, what, what yeah, who are the true victims? $10 billion, whatever, $11 billion was turned into eight. But like, what... Uh, what is the role of like what does it mean when a board of director abdicates boards of directors uh, board of directors they all abdicate their responsibility or advisors or lawyer, like all the people around him this like sanctioned recklessness i don't know it's like what you know when you brought up the financial crisis earlier it's like there were obvious like victims and it spread but it's like this it was like a similar thing everyone was going after the riches not dealing with anything and Fortunately, the victims were fewer here, but it, it is like the system that creates the financial crisis, the system that creates WeWork is all like people with a lot of money not doing what they should do when they have the power to change it. And I don't know, in this case, walking away kind of scot-free. It's like, uh, you know, some people lost money, but they still have a lot of money. Moss is going to be fine. Adam's 
more one of the five. wealthier people in the world. Yeah, I don't know. It just says something about that. It's it's sad. <laughs> that, that, that was like that's true. It wasn't a Hollywood ending in that way, where like you edited be like, and everyone's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that um, I don't know. Um, it, it, it's the type of thing where. We, it would be nicer if we had uh, sort of a, a, a clearer lesson from everything, but it got very hazy. Yes, where we're like sort of the macro environment ended up bailing things out. Some, um, I think, in terms of just like entrepreneurship, it's it's good to take big swings. Like that, that's kind of name of the game. The thing to keep in mind is just the scale, because like one of the as a reporter who covers venture capital, like one of the sort of frustrating things that can always justify anything is like. Well, we're not in the business of everything working out. We're we're here to take big bets, and and one out of ten can work out, and it's fine. And it's like that type of reasoning justifies doing the stupidest things on earth, right? Like you, you could have, well, I I want to spin spr- a startup that spins straw and makes it into gold, and like who knows, maybe it'll work. Um, and so I, I guess it's the scale, right? Like so, if you're pumping ten billion dollars into a a very clearly real estate company that that's a, a very different thing than if you're giving 17 million dollars which was the first big check that that we work got into a company that says they're going to do something big and has a really charismatic and and hard driving founder that 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 is a a great point and um i was part of a venture capital backed startup and i found it very difficult and frustrating because the ceo would essentially say it's like look um we have to grow explosively we have to have very high margins like we we have to take a big swing um and as a result we were really undisciplined in our spending and maybe because i'm like the son of immigrants like i just had a really hard time with like us blowing money on stuff <laughs> like like it, it like i just could handle it and, and and he had to explain to me the business rationale which is like look like we've raised seven million um at a valuation of like you know 20 uh, 2022 or whatever the only way anyone makes money is if we get to a valuation of let's call it 40 or 50 million the only path to getting a valuation is like if we end up with this number of clients so we have to like expand 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 <laughs> like, like, like it was it was like this um and uh, that company did not work out um uh, i learned a lot uh, but I, I think that there is something really uh uh, important about trying to calibrate the amount of money for the task at hand. What you're saying, Elliot, and there were some investors who went to um, to SoftBank and um, Mr. Sun, who were like, "I want 75," and he's like, "No, you want 300." Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and and if you are a smart entrepreneur, you're like, "300 million will break my company," because the only way I can justify it is if we like, you know, grow extraordinarily fast and we're going to end up blowing money and like having a bad culture and all this other stuff. But uh, I will say to you, like, if you're an entrepreneur and someone offers you, you the 300 million instead of the 75 million, like, you're going to take it. Like, like that, that, like, you know, to, to the extent that there was a problem in my mind, it was like, it, it was uh, the, the investors that were, uh, like, offering the money because, I, and, you know, like, I like to think if I was, like, a really great entrepreneur, I'd be like, I don't want the 300 million. I'm going to go, like, go someplace else. But, but in reality, if someone offers you that kind of investment, then you feel like you have to take it. And he also would say he would give it to your competitors. That was the other threat. It was like, if you don't take the $300 million, I'll give your direct competitor $300 million. Yes. It's that guy's fault. He's like the embodiment of, uh, of the excesses of the system. Um, well, congratulations on an awesome book. Uh, again, I couldn't put yeah. it down. It, it is The Cult of We. Um, so what comes next for each of you? Uh, and uh, the story. So this this might be made into a movie. That's one thing we can look forward to. Uh, but yeah, like what, what what's next for each of you? Um, I'll start. Uh, and it, to be clear, it wouldn't be it, the WeWork story is being made into a TV show, not uh, not based on on us. But I'm sure they love our book. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I uh, sort of you know in these days writing about a lot of SPACs, a lot of electric vehicle companies with no revenue that are worth twice as much as Nissan. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of always drawn to, uh, I like to cover irrationality. Uh, so, um, Elliot um, Brown, but... champion of reality, <laughs> keep an eye out. He's going to be 
like blowing the whistle on some other flim flam. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's what's next for Elliot, Maureen. Um, I'm back at the journal also. We're just, uh, I'm looking at private capital markets, public capital markets, just kind of looking more broadly, just trying to find the next interesting story. And it just feels like uh, there's a lot of a lot of things to find. I don't know where, but I'm sort of excited to go back to the, you know, drawing board and covering the kind of, in, this. the insanity hasn't stopped, as we said. It feels like there's a lot to look for. Well, th- this conversation has been a lot of fun, but it's also scared the shit out of me, I have to say. <laughs> you, guys <have> succeeded- <laughs> you guys have succeeded in scaring scaring me about what, what's going on out there. Uh, congratulations on an awesome Thank achievement. Uh, really happy for, for both of you. Um, everyone uh, listening to this should check out The Cult of We. I promise you it's a phenomenal read. Uh, and yeah, keep fighting for reality and telling important <laughs> stories out there. <laughs> Appreciate both of you a great deal. Uh, right. Thank you so much. Good luck with your book. Uh, yes. and we, yeah, this is a really fun conversation. Thanks, Andrew. Great to see you.